Ecclesiastes this morning. We'll continue our sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes. Might need to turn this down just a touch. I want to read a couple of passages this morning before we get into the message. Kind of use these as I often do as a springboard. And our message entitled, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. I want you to look at chapter 1, look at verse 17 and 18 to begin with. Solomon says, And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Now look at chapter 2. Let's start reading verse 9. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And then notice that last line, and there was no profit under the sun. Remember, we talked about the phrase under the sun Last week, when he talks about under the sun, he's talking about living life from an earthly and earthly perspective, not a heavenly perspective. Living life for self or for the world instead of living for God. Now, one more verse. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. He says, Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun, there's that phrase again, is grievous unto me. A life, he hated life, because the work that's done, all that's done, Outside of God is grievous unto me for all his vanity and vexation of spirit. Father, please open our hearts and minds this morning. I pray that the distractions be kept to a minimum. That, Father, we would hear what you are saying to us. We would understand that to live life any other way than, Father, with you in our hearts and in our minds is a life of failure and will never produce contentment or satisfaction. In Christ's name, amen. In his book, Facing Loneliness, Oswald Sanders writes this, The round of pleasure or the amassing of wealth are but vain attempts to escape from the persistent ache. The millionaire is usually a lonely, lonely man, and the comedian is often more unhappy than his audience. Now, many of you may wonder where I got the title for the message today. If any of you are my age or a little bit older, you know where I got the title for the message today. Back in 1965, Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards woke up from a hangover, a drug and alcohol-infused fog in a hotel room that was littered with empty alcohol bottles, drug paraphernalia, and, and female groupies. And he woke up with a lyric running through his head. And the lyric was that sentence, I can't get no satisfaction. Well, he and Mick Jagger, the lead singer for the Stones, ended up writing the rest of the lyrics together. And that song in 1965 became Rolling Stones' number one First number one hit in the United States and their, their fourth number one hit in the United Kingdom. Now, even though Keith Richards and Mick Jagger 
get the credit for writing the lyrics and recording the song. Folks, I believe that Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes is actually the original artist of that title. I can't get no satisfaction. I mean, he has looked, he has longed, he has lusted, and lived life fuller than anybody before him. Yet he has been unable to arrive at that elusive destination of satisfaction and contentment. Now, remember our last message last week, Solomon, the scientist, he told us that uh, without God, the world is a closed system and nothing changes. Also, last week, Solomon, the historian, told us that without God, life is a closed book and there's nothing new. Well, today, Solomon, the philosopher, he's going to conclude chapters 1 and 2, and he's going to tell us that without God, life is simply a deep problem and nothing can be understood. Now, there are several things that Solomon talks about and several ways that he tries to find satisfaction that he records for us. I want you to notice uh, several of them this morning. Number one, the first thing he talks about in his pursuit of satisfaction is the pursuit itself of satisfaction, the ways that he has attempted to be satisfied. To be content. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. Even though this was written thousands of years ago, it still hadn't changed. People still try to find satisfaction and contentment in all of these places. I mean, one thing is for sure and certain. When you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's basically Solomon's journal. When you read through this journal, you find out that Solomon was a man that definitely been around the block. Like I said last week, he had just been around the block once. He'd been around the block many numerous times. I mean, he had done just about everything you could do, been just about everywhere you could go. He'd done everything that a man could possibly do to pursue satisfaction, to pursue contentment in his life. Now, he mentions three of them in our passage this morning. Number one, he talks about uh, the pursuit of satisfaction uh, pursued by wisdom. Look at verses 12 through 17. Chapter 1, he says, I the preacher was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sword prevail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. Verse 14, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. There's that phrase again, remember, from an earthly perspective. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Verse 15, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. That which is wanting cannot be numbered. I commune with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart and great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 17, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. Solomon ends the first chapter of his journal by describing, folks, the futility of searching for satisfaction in learning and wisdom. Now, once again, he's talking about learning and knowledge and wisdom from a worldly standpoint, a worldly perspective apart from God. Now, I think it's ironic that the wisest, the best educated man of his generation comes to this conclusion. I mean, here was a man who had pursued wisdom in every avenue imaginable. Yet with all of his wisdom and all of his learning, to his surprise, the more he learned, the emptier he felt. In his book, Searching for Heaven on Earth, Dr. David Jeremiah tells the story of a young 17-year-old girl by the name of Karen Chang. 
And she's from Fremont, California. And she was a phenom. She's a genius. She uh, scored 17 years old. She scored a perfect 800 on both sections of her SAT. But she also scored a perfect 8,000 on her entrance exam to California University, which has never happened in the history of that school. Now, Karen, in describing herself, she's, she's a straight-A student, but she says this, I'm a typical teenager. I love to eat way too much junk food. I spend way too many hours on the phone texting and talking. She said, I also procrastinate doing my homework to the last minute. But her teachers say something different. Her teachers, they typically call her Wonder Woman. And the reason they do is because of her unique thirst for knowledge. She has an unquenchable thirst to learn more and more. And she also has the uncanny ability to remember and retain whatever she reads. So she's a, a, a very intelligent young woman. Now a reporter asked her a question. Said, with all of your learning that you've gained and all that you will gain. He said, do you have any idea? He said, I'm going to ask you the question that people have asked wise men and women and sages throughout history. What is the meaning of life? And with a frown on her face, she said, I don't know. But I truly wish that somebody could tell me. Folks, T.S. Eliot wrote this. He said, all our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. Let me read you verse 18 again. Look at look what Solomon said. That's exactly what he's saying. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. As far as knowledge and wisdom was concerned, with Solomon, the fuller he got, the emptier he felt. I mean, it didn't bring the satisfaction that he was looking for, that he thought he would find with all of his education and knowledge and wisdom. Now, I want you to think about the day in which we're living today. Consider the total sum of all of our knowledge today. Do you realize that survey and science tells us that our knowledge doubles every two and a half months? Because of the information, the internet, because of the age in which we're living, our knowledge doubles every two and a half months. Now consider all the progress we've made, made technologically speaking, medically speaking, uh, scientifically speaking, economically speaking, militarily speaking. With all this progress, has it made life richer and fuller and more satisfying? You can go ahead and answer it because everybody knows what the answer is. It's a resounding no. All the knowledge, all the wisdom, all that we have gained has not made life any better. I believe that to answer that question again is a resounding no. Now, while we're flying higher, traveling farther, going faster than any generation in history, there's never been more unhappy people than we have in this generation. I mean, folks, listen, millions of people, in spite of all of our knowledge and wisdom today, millions of people are still illiterate and can't read. Untold millions are hungry. They're starving. There's disease. There, there are people who are disowned. Uh, genocide taking place all across the globe. With all of our wisdom, all of our earthly knowledge, folks, we can't do anything about terrorism, war, and famine. I mean, with all of our knowledge and wisdom, it can't keep people from simply being disillusioned and miserable with their life. Vance Havner was right, and I quote, 
He said, it's odd that scholars master a whole library seeking wisdom while the poor janitor nearby who loves Jesus has had wisdom for years. Solomon says, he seems to say, take it from me. I had all the wisdom and knowledge a man would ever hope for, but it produced no satisfaction. Now look at the second thing. He talks about satisfaction pursued in wisdom, but also pursued in work. As you get into chapter 2, Solomon He's traveled numerous, various roads trying to find satisfaction. Because in verse 1, uh, verse 1 and 2, he talks about amusement. Thought he'd find satisfaction in amusement. No, there's no satisfaction there. In verse 3 of chapter 2, he talks about alcohol. Maybe, you know, uh, with alcohol, with wine, or, or modern terminology with, with whiskey, wine, or drugs, or whatever it is. He says, no, couldn't find any satisfaction there. Now look in verse 4. He seeks satisfaction in his work. He said, I made me great works. I built me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees uh, in them of all kinds of fruit. Verse 6. I made me pools of water to water wherewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. Now, Solomon's legacy as a builder speaks for itself. I mean, it's unquestioned. He put up houses, planted vineyards and gardens and orchards and, and made pools to water all this stuff with. He erected a temple, folks, that in size and splendor was second to none. However, all of these things, satisfaction could not be found. In all of this building, all of these works that he done. Derek Kidner, who is a, a great Old Testament scholar and commentary writer, said this. What spoils the pleasures of life for us is our hunger to get out of them more than they can deliver. Getting eternal and ultimate meaning out of temporal and temporary pursuits is destined to fall. You know that old saying, uh, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy? I think Solomon would have added to that, all work and no play makes Jack not only a dull boy, but an empty boy. You know, we all know people, and let's be honest about it, maybe, maybe some of us are this way. People who try to bury and hide themselves in their work. Well, it seems like they're a hard worker, and I'm, I'm sure they are, and they're earning a living for the family. Deep down, they're trying to find satisfaction in their work. But I'm going to tell you, listen close. Work in and of itself and by itself cannot produce satisfaction. Just ask Solomon. That leads us to the third thing Solomon speaks of. Satisfaction pursued in wealth. You know, one would think if someone was not able to find satisfaction in wisdom and knowledge, not able to find satisfaction in work, surely they would find it in money. Surely they'd find it in wealth. Well, let's look at Solomon's portfolio. Let's start reading in verse 7. He says, I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle. <clears throat> above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and other provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. Verse 9. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of all my labor. Now I think when you look at that, you agree with me, folks. That's a pretty impressive resume or pretty impressive financial portfolio. Matter of fact, let's do something. Let's compute Let's take a moment and just figure up and compute the wealth of Solomon into today's standards. 
Uh, here's a verse. First, uh, First Kings chapter 10, 14. We're told that the weight of gold in that verse, the weight of gold that came to Solomon every year was 603 score and six talents. That's 666 talents of gold. You say, is that a lot? Well, in our current economy, that comes out to about $304 million a year. But that's not all. Because look at verse 8. Did you notice? Solomon also had silver and treasure of kings and of the province. So all said and done, all told with Solomon's net worth in today's economy, many historians and scholars believe it would be between $500 and $700 million annually. Say, well, that sounds like a lot. Let's break it down even farther. That means that each week, each week he was making 10 to $14 million. I don't know about you, but that's hard for me to even say. That's a lot of money. I can't even imagine that kind of money. But let me ask you, did that kind of wealth produce satisfaction? Look at verse 11. Again. He says, Solomon says, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Even though he had all this, 10 to $14 million a week coming in. He said, It brought no pleasure, no satisfaction, no contentment. I remind the story of John D. Rockefeller, who many believe to be one of the, the richest men who ever lived. His income when he uh, was close to death was a little over a million dollars a week. A little over a million a week. But in his biography, his biographer tells the story of how this millionaire ate like a pauper. And the reason he did is because his doctors wouldn't let him eat very much because of all the stress that he was under and all the ailments that that stress produced. So here you got a man who is a millionaire, richest man in the world, but he's so miserable he don't even have the ability to enjoy his food. For some reason, folks, well, let's be honest about it. Man, we feel like that if we can climb the corporate ladder, make a little more money, drive a little faster car, buy a little nicer house, send our kids to a better college, then we'll achieve satisfaction. But Solomon, the wisest man, the wealthiest man, the hardest working man in his time, at the end of the day, Solomon said, if you're looking to find satisfaction in wisdom and work or wealth, he said, I'm telling you, it's all vanity and vexation of spirit and there's no profit in it under the sun. You're not going to find it there. Second thing I'm going to call your attention to is the pretense of satisfaction. Now, I think I've shared a couple of these great truths with you before, but they come from an article that I read years ago, and I have, uh, I've, I like to read it every once in a while because I need it. And what this is are great truths from little children, truths about life, great truths about life from little children. Let me share some with you. Now these are truths that little kids come up with about life. They're important. One little kid said the best place to be when you're sad is in grandpa's lap. Another one said, when your mom's mad at your dad, don't let her brush your hair. Another one said, if your sister hits you, don't hit her back. They always catch the second person. Uh, another little girl said, never tell your four-year-old brother a secret. I know how that went. Uh, another one says, you can't trust your dog to watch your hamburger. Uh, these are great truths that children have learned about life, okay? Another little boy says, don't sneeze when someone's cutting your hair. Uh, 
Then the little girl says, this is one of my favorites, never use the vacuum cleaner and hold a cat at the same time. Another little girl says, you can't hide a piece of broccoli in a glass of milk. Mom will find out. And then the final one, this is my favorite one, no matter how hard you try, you cannot baptize a cat. I like that. <laughs> great truths that little children have learned. Well, folks, listen to me. Solomon, he learned some great truths about life as well. And one thing that Solomon learned was there were many things in life that hold the pretense of satisfaction, that give the illusion that they'll lead to satisfaction. He speaks, first of all, about that which does not fulfill us. Let's look at verse 11 through 13. He says, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Verse 12. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do that cometh after the king? Even that which hath already been done, or been done already. Verse 13. Then I saw the wisdom, saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. Now as you read Solomon's resume, you, you see that he enjoyed some accomplishments most people don't. I mean Solomon, he was excelled as a politician, as an educator, as an economist, as a public leader, as a philosopher. You name it, he did it. But even when he looked back on all that he supposedly accomplished, he was disappointed because it left him still unfulfilled, unsatisfied. All the works of his hand, all that he accomplished, he said, I can't find any satisfaction in any of it. You know, uh, several years ago, U.S. News and World Report, they devoted an entire cover story to this very subject we're talking about this morning. Let me read it to you, just a little excerpt from it. It says, today, uh, work dominates Americans' lives as never before. As workers pile on the hours at a rate not seen since the Industrial Revolution, Many workers are feeling insecure, unfulfilled, and underappreciated. It's no wonder surveys of today's workers show a steady decline in job satisfaction. People are feeling crushed. And then the article goes on, and I can relate with this next part. It talks about intrusive cell phones and the never-ending relentless pursuit of emails and texts have blurred the lines between work and home. Home is no longer a refuge, but an extension of the office. I'm going to tell you something, folks. That article, that simply states what Solomon learned thousands of years ago. Wisdom, work, wealth, they didn't satisfy him, and I can assure you they will not satisfy us either. Because, let me say this, while all of us here today, we may be on different levels in terms of wisdom and wealth and work. But I want you to look at verses 14 and 15. Solomon says, the wise man's eyes are in his head, and the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Then said I in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. So what Solomon is saying is, whether we learn a lot, make a lot, or achieve a lot, every one of us, we all have something in common. There is one event, he says, that happeneth to all of us. You know what that event is? Death. Death. It's going to come to all of us. Dr. Harry Ironside said, death is the great leveler of all men. Whether rich or poor, wise or foolish, powerful or weak, renowned or obscure, no one can rise above it, cheat it, or escape its eventual claim on his life. Solomon says not only is there no satisfaction in that which does not fulfill us, 
But he goes on to say, there's also no satisfaction in those things that will not follow us. In other words, things that are of a temporal nature and not an eternal nature. Look at verse 16. Let's start reading there. 16 of chapter 2. It says, For there is, <coughs> there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man as the fool? Verse 17. Therefore I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth, verse 19, who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Now let's go ahead and read verses 20 through 23. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man... Yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. Verse 22, For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? There's that phrase again. Verse 23, For all his days are sorrows and his travail grief. Yea, this heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. Now let me break all that down for you and tell you. What Solomon is simply saying is, go ahead, learn all you can, earn all you can, buy all you want, build all you want, but when it's all said and done, it's not going to matter. It doesn't make a bit of difference. Because at your last breath, he says you're going to loosen your grip on everything. You spent your whole life under the sun from a, from a temporal earthly perspective working on, all that these things you've accomplished, all these things you have amassed to yourself, he said when it's all said and done, you're going to leave it to somebody else. It's not going to follow you. So from an earthly, temporal perspective, learning, earning, buying, and building for this life alone with no thought of God or eternity, he said it's all vanity. It's vexation of spirit. It's not going to follow you. Now, I want to make something clear. Solomon is not saying we should not provide for the future or think about the future. He's not saying that we shouldn't leave something for our wives and children and grandchildren. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying that all the money in the world doesn't produce anything that endures through time and eternity. Now, you heard this many times, but let me just ask you. Have you ever seen a Brinks armored car following a hearse to a graveyard? You won't. It's not going to follow after you. Not only does it not fulfill us in this life, but it's not going to follow us in the next life. Now I want you to see finally, I want to call your attention to the place of satisfaction. Now Solomon, he has pursued satisfaction and contentment and wisdom and work and wealth. He's seen the pretense of satisfaction, the fact that everything he accumulated under the sun in a worldly perspective, it didn't fulfill him and it's not going to follow him. So you know what? We're almost left to wonder, is there any place to find satisfaction? I mean, if we cannot find it in wealth and wisdom and fame and fortune and riches and pleasures and possessions, then where can that satisfaction be found today? There you go. Solomon comes to the conclusion 
The place of satisfaction was not gold, but God. In all the creation, he said, I cannot find satisfaction, but I can find it in the Creator. Satisfaction is not found in the gifts and the provisions, but in the giver and the provider. As you come to the end of chapter 2, we're going to find six, uh, the first of six conclusions that Solomon comes to in the book of Ecclesiastes that he arrives at. Now each of these conclusions, they emphasize the importance of enjoying life, uh, embracing and experience life, experiencing life over the sun from God's perspective, not under the sun from our own perspective. Now Solomon shares his insight to the place of satisfaction because first off, he speaks about the gracious gift of enjoyment. Now let me share something. You may want to write verse 24 down somewhere, a note in your Bible. Because uh, a lot of people seem to think, unless we get the idea and think that God doesn't want us to enjoy life, verse 24 is completely against that idea. I realize there are a lot of people who say that for you to really be a born-again Christian and to be sanctified, holified, and baptized, or whatever it is, that you cannot enjoy life. Look at verse 24. There's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. And then notice the last part of that. Verse 24. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. <laughs> from the hand of God. Folks, listen to me. The la and you know what? I love verse 25. I'm going to have to explain it to you because the King James Version, honestly, doesn't do a very good job interpreting, or interpreting, translating this. Look at verse 25. He says, for who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? The key to what he's saying is right there in verse 25. A better rendering, a better translation of that verse is, and I think most of the modern English translations have this, he's saying, for who can eat or enjoy anything in life apart from God? It's impossible to enjoy anything in life without God. In other words, everything we have, every moment we live, is a gracious gift God has given us for our enjoyment. And listen, we ought to enjoy life, Christian. Amen? And we ought to be thankful for life and for the blessings of life. I love how James puts it in the New Testament. James chapter 1, verse 17. He says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow or turning. Listen to me, folks. The Bible, God's Word is very clear. The Bible teaches us all of the wealth, health, or happiness we could ever hope to achieve will never bring satisfaction in and of itself. It's only when we view all that we are, all that we have, all that we'll ever have, it's only when we view it through the glasses of God's grace that we begin to understand and see that God's the one that's given us all these things that we have. Our life, uh, uh, the love of our lives, uh, the very breath that we take, folks, it all comes from the hand of God by His grace. And when we understand that and we grasp that, then we can really begin to enjoy life the way God intended. So here's the point. If God has graciously, graciously given us all these things, let me ask you, how important do you think it is that God be right in the middle of everything we have? 
I mean, our, our checkbook, our bank book, our date book, our work schedule. Solomon, he, he says that the more we enjoy the giver, the more we're going to enjoy the gifts because they're graciously given by God to us for our enjoyment. But we can't enjoy them when we don't understand where they come from. When we don't comprehend the graciousness of God. Finally, I want you to see the gift of enlightenment. Look at verse 26. Solomon concludes, For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he giveth travail, to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. In other words, as we begin to lift our eyes from the gifts and the blessings of life to the giver of life, God not only graciously gives uh, us the enjoyment that we can have in life, but also He gives us the enlightenment. Now what I mean by that is, folks, we grow in the wisdom of using the blessings that God daily bestows upon us. And we grow to the point we enjoy using those blessings, life itself and all that God's given us, using those things for His glory and His honor. That's when satisfaction and contentment begins to take hold. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I have known people over the years, and I've seen, pretty wealthy, and I've seen people build some magnificent homes. Matter of fact, my family and I, years ago, we used to make a pretty good living building those homes for people, doing the carpentry work in them, doing the cabinet work in them, and some of the money they spent just on cabinets was mind-boggling. Magnificent homes. But I'm going to tell you something. Those homes and every, everything that, that those people had was clenched and clutched by selfish hands. By greedy hands. I mean, while outwardly their beautiful, magnificent house, yeah, it was lofty and magnificent. Inwardly, the house might have been magnificent. The home was empty. The home was lonely. The home was hopeless. And satisfaction and contentment could not be found anywhere in that house. And I'll tell you why. Because God was not present in any room of that house. But then I've been to some homes from other folks who uh, many people probably call them shacks. I mean dirt floors. Uh, not really much of anything materialistic wise. Things of the world. But I'm going to tell you something in those poor homes. The glory of God filled every room that they had. And I'm going to tell you, in those poor homes where God was welcome, and God was at home, and God's presence was there, in those homes, they had something far greater than what the world could offer. They had something far greater than fancy mirrors and paintings and chandeliers. They had warmth, love, laughter, joy, and contentment. I want to close, folks, by telling you a true story. This is about a, a little elderly woman, very godly Christian woman, Methodist woman, by the name of Clara Williams. Years ago, Miss Clara, she lived in one of these houses I'm talking about. It was a shack. It had a dirt floor. It had curtains and sheets that divided the rooms. Her only light was actually from an old coal oil lamp that she had. At any given time, she might have enough food in the cupboard for one more meal. All the money that she had, which 
could fit in the palm of your hand. She didn't put it in the bank. She had it in the bowl underneath the head of her bed. Well, one day a friend of Miss Clara's asked her, and Miss Clara had a knack for writing poetry. One of her friends asked her, said, write me a poem, just something from your heart. I want you to hear what this little poor widow woman wrote. She said, all my life I had a longing for a drink from some clear, cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst that I felt within. Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through his blood, I know I'm saved. There's a great big difference between contentment and satisfaction and materialistic wealth. Do you agree with that? Some of the most miserable people I've known in my life have been some of the richest material people I've known in my life. And some of the most content, loving, godly people I've ever known in my life were some of the worldly poorest people I've ever known. If you've never been to a third world country and visited with other Christians, I encourage you to do that sometime. They may not have a lot to offer. And that chicken they fixed for supper may look like a pigeon. But it'll bless your heart. Because their contentment and satisfaction is not based on what they have, but on who has them. I believe Solomon would agree with Miss Claire Williams, her poem. I think he just said an amen to it. There's only one place to find that satisfaction. Our wisdom, our work, and wealth, it may provide that temporary fleeting moments of happiness, but it will not provide permanent satisfaction and contentment. It's only, folks, as we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that every longing, every thirsting, every hungering of our soul is eternally satisfied. Now, I'm going to say this to you. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you'll never know satisfaction. You will never, ever know contentment. I don't care how much you own, how much you possess, how many things you've accomplished. Without Jesus Christ, you cannot know satisfaction and contentment. And I'll take it a step farther and say, you'll never know joy the way God intended you to. Because without Christ, the theme song of your life is going to be, I can't get no satisfaction. There's a poem that stayed with me over the years ever since I started preaching. It said, people all around me are trying to find what the heart yearns for, but by sin they're undermined. Well, I have the answer. I know where it's found. Only in Jesus true contentment abounds. Would you bow your heads, please? With every head bowed, let me tell you that some of you here this morning, you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. You need to surrender your total being to Him. Quit trying to find something in the world that the world cannot give you. That only comes from Christ. Now, I'm not saying you come to Jesus that your life will be uh, roses and, and you'll be living on Golden Boulevard. No. I'm saying you will know satisfaction and contentment. You'll be like the Apostle Paul and say, whatever state I find myself, I'm content. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. If you've never given your life to Christ, that's where it needs to start at this morning. Father, I pray for those that need to make a decision for you, that need to establish that relationship with you. 
they would have the courage to do so. I pray for Christians that are here today and they've been living a miserable existence, a miserable life because they've been searching for contentment and satisfaction in what the world offers. When all along, all along, as your children, they have it if they just claim it. Father, thank you for your great love for us and the salvation you offer in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand, please?